Good morning. I want to thank you for having me here again this morning. By my count, this is the third time uh, that Alex and I have swapped uh, pulpits. I told our congregation at North Hills that we weren't literally swapping the pulpits because they're big and heavy, but nobody laughed. So I, I don't know if it's a bad joke or, or just my crowd, um, but uh, we are. Alex is up there, I hope. I didn't actually see him, but I'm here, and I thank you. I thank the leaders of our churches uh, for encouraging us in this and allowing this, and I thank you, uh, the congregation here at the Village Church, for, for having me. Uh, my passage this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 9, and you may have seen my title in the bulletin. It's Ministry from Our Knees, so my main theme this morning is prayer, but as you think about that, you might think, oh great, here comes the guilt trip. Because that's what pastors do. They're going to talk to us about how uh, we're not praying enough. We're not doing enough. We're not reading scripture enough. We're not enough. I don't want you to hear that this morning. I want you to hear that Christ is enough. Christ is always enough. And because he's enough, then we can move into our ministry in this church, at North Hills, around this place. We can move into it with freedom and joy. Even as we recognize that still, we got a lot of growing to do. we got a lot of maturing. And God is faithful in that work. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? Jesus is enough. Guiltless. Until in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for this congregation, these people gathered here today, even maybe guests or visitors that you've brought through these doors. Lord, we thank you for this holy occasion of being able to hear from you in your word. Father, we praise you for the songs that we have sung. We praise you for the confessions that we have made. We praise you as we've gathered as your people. And now we praise you for your word as we come to hear it. Lord, I pray that where there may be confusion or uncertainty, those would be my words and they would quickly pass. But Lord, where your word is, may it remain with us and carry us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Messy. That's the word Alex used to describe this church. Messy. 
at Presbytery, we gather leaders of the, our congregations in, a, in the geographic area of North Alabama, churches in our denomination. We gather, and every time we have a couple different churches or representatives of those churches share about what's going on, prayer requests, things to be encouraged by, and the like. And I, I appreciate that we started that practice a couple years ago because it makes us a little bit more... Uh, priestly towards each other. That is, we're ministering towards to one another as opposed to just, you know, yes, we have business to do and that's important, but actually praying because we hear those requests and we hear those needs and we hear those praises and we pray about them. So Alex said messy. He wasn't talking about the Corinthian church. He was talking about this church. But maybe that's not fair. He said beautifully messy. That's how he described this congregation, beautifully messy. And I think that's apt description even for the Corinthian church. You could know, if you know about the Corinthian church, you might say, what a mess this place is. They had serious doctrinal error. They had drifted away from a focus on the cross of Christ and they had become attracted to the wisdom of, of men. They had serious divisions and factions within the church. They had a form of immorality in their midst that would even shock the pagans around them. And yet they only tolerated it and even maybe were proud of it. There were lawsuits taking place among the believers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. It's quite the indictment, isn't it? Not only that, they had misunderstanding and misuse of the spiritual gifts. And there was opposition to Paul in his apostolic authority. What a mess. So if you were writing a letter to this church, where would you start? What would you dive into? Well, Paul's starting place is actually prayer. It's from his knees. It's a ministry from there. And in this chapter, at the beginning of this chapter, we get to overhear Paul's prayer for the Corinthians. Verse 4, which we'll look at it again. But he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of the God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So I have a very simple theme this morning, my big point, is just to say what is the basis of and barriers to our ministering or leading through prayer. And as you hear that word leading, I don't want you to think of, well, I'm not a leader, as in I don't have an office, I'm not an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school leader or a worship leader. No, don't hear that. I'm saying every one of you, every one of you from the youngest to the oldest can lead this church from your knees. You can pray. And so I hope everyone will be listening as we think about the basis and the barriers of our prayers. So first, the basis, just very simply, three things, the sovereignty of God, the centrality of Christ and a heart for God's people. First, we have to start with the sovereignty of of God, especially regarding our salvation. Paul begins in verses one and two. He speaks of his own calling and then he speaks of the calling of the church. So he says, Paul called by the will of God 
to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And then he goes on to say, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's you. And that's up the hill in North Hills. All those called together. Here we are called by the grace of God. Paul goes from himself to the church in Corinth to the body of Christ, wherever it may be found. And it's a good reminder, as Paul starts there, when God is calling and we recognize that he is called and then he's continuing his work of sanctification, it's a reminder to us that God is and has been at work long before we showed up. Long before you walked into this place, long before you joined this church, long before you were a Christian, long before God is and has been at work. Oh, sorry. There's not, y'all, there's like an, there needs to be an, I'll talk to Alex, there needs to be like an instruction manual back here. So that's the starting place. When we are starting our prayers with the recognition that God's at work, it changes our attitude and our focus. Now we're not fretting, but we're recognizing the grace of God at work within us. It becomes a focus for us. Eugene Peterson says, prayer gets us in on what God is doing. The task is not to get God to do something I think needs done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can participate in it. So this becomes our attitude. This becomes the direction of our prayers. The sovereignty of God becomes the very ground that we kneel upon in these prayers. But not just that, there's the centrality of Christ nine times in these nine verses Paul mentions Christ in some fashion. If you just read through it or as you heard it over and over again, he'll say Christ or he'll say Jesus Christ, our Lord, or he'll say the Lord Jesus Christ. He alternates the way he's using the name and title of Christ. But it's there again and again and again, nine times in these nine verses. Christ has to be central in our ministry and in our prayers. But let's be honest Is Jesus just the bookends of your prayers? Is he just the starting place? Dear Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Amen, Jesus. Is it is it just the bookends, the starting place? No, Jesus needs to be throughout our prayers. I'm not giving you a quota and saying you've got to say nine times in nine sentences. But let's let Jesus infuse our prayers from beginning to end and in the middle and everywhere else. Let's let Jesus be central in our ministry because that is a corrective. Because on my own, I'll be honest, I want ministry to be about me. I want it to be about what I want or what I outcome I desire. I want it to be for my glory or my gain. Let's be honest. And so to put Christ central in our prayers, to have that as even a goal, changes And it changes my heart. It becomes the corrective that I need. Because I need Christ to be far more glorious in my church than me. 
I need him to be far more glorious in our Presbyterian in this church than me or Alex or any other leader. And so I've got to keep him central to what I'm praying. So even a prayer might even be Jesus. Help me to know what even I should pray. For you and in seeking you lead me in that. So we have the sovereignty of God as the basis of our prayer, the very ground in which we kneel. And then the centrality of Christ infusing our prayers, which leads us to a heart for God's people. Which is demonstrated by a willingness to place ourselves between God and those we pray for as intercessors. As advocates throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea Moses standing between a stiff necked people. And a holy God. And Moses himself, a sinner, Daniel praying before this holy God and saying, we have sinned, even acknowledging the sins of people that have long before him. And yet he stands before them and says, we have sinned. He owns that. Nehemiah does the same thing. Intercessors, advocates, heart for God's people. And Paul's heart is not determined by the difficulty present in the Corinthian church. He doesn't start by saying, listen, I'm going to set this straight. Eyes on me, people. He doesn't start there. He starts with his prayer and his thanksgiving. And at the end of this letter, he says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And then in Second Corinthians, the letter that he writes later to them, he becomes aware that even what he has corrected, because this doesn't keep him from addressing what needs to be corrected. He does. But he says in Second Corinthians seven, eight, nine, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. You see, though, that's what Paul's prayed for. Paul's prayed for this sanctification, this work of God's spirit to be among them. And so he has this heart for God's people that leads him closer You know what happens when we sin against one another? We get driven away from each other. I don't like the way you talk. I don't like the way you sing. I don't like the way you mistreated me. On and on and on. And we get driven apart. But when we pray, it brings our heart together. And we begin to see God at work within us. Do you have any five-year-olds in the house? Anybody five? Okay, right there. Awesome. All right, true story. Little boy named Sam, five years old. Okay, so your age, sir. All right. He heard uh, somehow, I'm not sure exactly how he heard about this, but he heard about the Rapa Nui, Nui people on Easter Island. And he began to pray for them because they did not have the word of God in their language. A little while later, his parents received a letter from Wycliffe Bible translators saying that translators had been assigned to the Rapa Nui people. He had begun praying for these people before he even knew that there was even a thought that the translators would go. In fact, they began to realize that that when that decision was being made was when he had begun praying. 
A five-year-old can understand that our prayers can change things, can move things, can do things. When we keep God sovereign, or we don't keep him sovereign, but when we acknowledge him as sovereign, when we keep Christ central and we have a heart for God's people, those are prayers that God can use. Those are That's the basis of our prayers, and it takes us beyond ourselves to the throne of God. Do you believe that God is at work here? Do you believe, even when you can't see it, that God is at work? John Bunyan said, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assurance of the Holy Spirit. So you hear that, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? For such things as God hath promised, or according to the word, for the good of the church with submission in faith to the will of God. Now, you may be saying, well, I don't even know where to begin. Let me tell you, start with the Lord's Prayer. Not out of just a rote repetition. We use it regularly at North Hills. But it becomes a model for us. It becomes something that we can use when we don't know what else to pray. Or take great prayers of Scripture. You find them in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Take the Psalms. Pray those when you don't know what else to pray. Because when we pray in that way, when we use Scripture to pray, then we will surely keep God, have God as sovereign and keep Christ as central and develop a greater heart for his people. Now, that's the basis. That's the good stuff. Now, let's talk about the hard stuff. The barriers to our prayers. We've got to be honest here. Pride. Complaint and criticism. Pessimism and cynicism. I'm making those three things. You may say those are five. But I'm keeping it short. Pride. There's two subtle directions I think pride goes in the way it injures our prayers. First, pride is the self-exaltation. It's having thinking, I need to have a place that I don't have. Or someone needs to recognize my leadership. Or recognize those things that I've done. Or recognize something in me. Self, self-exaltation. When we exalt ourselves, we will, by nature, bring God down. And that will destroy our prayers. That will become a barrier to our prayers. But there's also self-pity. And what I mean by that is when we become hurt and we turn inward, it's a form of pride we don't recognize. Because we think we've gotten low. But the reason we've gotten low is because we think we should be higher. And so those are two sides, two different directions that pride goes. And maybe you tend towards one or the other. But in either case, those disconnect, those disconnect us from prayer and the people of God. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, says, Prayer pursues joy in fellowship with Jesus and in power to share his life with others. And prayer pursues God's glory by treating him as the inexhaustible reservoir of hope and help. In prayer, we admit our poverty and God's prosperity, our bankruptcy and his bounty, our misery and his mercy. Therefore, prayer highly exalts and glorifies God precisely by pursuing everything we long for in him and not in ourselves. So what's the antidote to our pride? It's to pursue God. It's to pursue God in prayer. Look at verse 3. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you say, well, that's just how Paul writes his letters. He's so polite. We say sincerely, he says grace and peace. Well, let me tell you, this grace and peace is everything. It is everything to the believer. It is no mere politeness. He's saying the very grace of God be to you and peace from God, our Father. You have this shalom. You have this flourishing because you are in relationship to God and he has made it so. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, Romans 5. And so we can pursue God on the basis of that grace and peace that is now at work. And that becomes an antidote to our pride because if you're pursuing God, you are turning away from those things that you seek to ele- in, in ways you which you seek to elevate yourself. You can't have both. You're either going to exalt God, you're either going to glorify Him, or you're going to try to glorify yourself. And so that's why it's so important for us to come here week after week to pursue God and His grace and His peace as we recognize it's been poured out upon us. So that's pride, that's a barrier, but pursuit is our antidote. Then there's complaint and criticism. You may know the old Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown, Lucy, Linus, the rest. Well, Linus is curled up in a chair quietly reading a book while Lucy stands with, uh, behind him with a look on her face. And then she speaks. And she says, it's very strange. It just happens just by looking at you. Elias asks, what happens? Lucy calmly answers, I feel a criticism coming on. You know, that's exactly how we feel as we look around. We have a criticism coming on. It's easy to complain. The sun is glorious today, isn't it? Now, let's be honest. Who complained about the rain this week? Yeah, I know. I know. It's easy to move into that place. And Paul certainly could complain about the Corinthians. He will address their problems, but he's praying for them and he's thanking God for them. So he says, verse four, I give thanks to my God when I feel like it, when you're doing well, when you've got it shaped up. No, he says always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So he has this permanent attitude of thanks, thanksgiving. And I was preaching an installation service for a good friend of mine who's being installed in a church. And I preached from 1 Thessalonians. I always stumble on that. That's why I'm never going to actually preach from 1 Thessalonians for long. Because I'll always flub it. But I was preaching from 1 Thessalonians. And I was struck by the idea that the church doesn't have to be perfect for me to give thanks. I think a lot of times we feel like we've got to, the church has got to be the way we want it before I'm going to give thanks to God for it. It doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, it will never on this side of glory be perfect. And so notice then in verses 5 and 6 that Paul goes on from this permanent attitude of thanks to giving specific thanks. He says that in every way you were enriched in Him, that is in Christ, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. See, he can see, Paul can see that Christ is at work. And he can give thanks to God for it. What do you and what can you today give thanks to God for this church? 
When you go home, what prayer of thanksgiving can you pray? No, it's not perfect. I'm sure of that. Alex said it was messy. He said it's beautifully messy. So I'm pretty sure it's not perfect. And now I'm here and I'm sure it's not perfect. But what can you give thanks to God for this church today? Because that pursuit of thanksgiving now, you pursue God and now you pursue thanksgiving towards him, will stifle the complaint and the criticism that just naturally wells up in our heart. Finally, pessimism pessimism and cynicism. First of all, I'm putting them together because pessimism fails to see how God could be at work in particular situations. Cynicism scoffs at the idea that God is at work. And both are fundamentally incompatible with prayer and faith. If you're following God, if you have faith in God, you have faith in Christ, then you cannot be pessimistic. You cannot be cynical. Otherwise, you don't really know who Christ is in all of his glory and all of his power. And so what practice do we practice? Uh, What do we do to stifle the pessimism and the cynicism that wells up within us? Well, understand the goal and the end of our faith based on the faithfulness of God. Verses 7 through 9, Paul continues. He says, so that you are not lacking in, in, in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end? You hear that? Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you going to stand before God guiltless on your own? No, but in Christ you will, and he will sustain you to the end. And just in case you didn't get it, just in case the Corinthian church didn't get it, God is faithful. Amen? Amen. God is faithful by whom you were called. There's that word again. Speaking of God's sovereignty and bringing us into relationship with him, but whom you by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So against your pessimism, there's the hope of what God is doing against your cynicism. There is the hope that God will be at work from now until the end and he will be glorified in this church. What are the barriers to your prayers here? I can't answer that question. You know this place. But what is it that's keeping you from praying? Every one of you, from the youngest to the oldest, leading in prayer, is there something that's keeping you? Is it your pride? Is it that a complaining spirit? Is it criticism? Because you're, it's easy to be critical about the church. I can tell you about North Hills all day long. Or is it your pessimism? Have you begun to doubt that God is on the move? Have you become cynical that his spirit is here in this place? Whatever those barriers are, pursue God and his grace and his peace. Give thanksgiving to him and look for the hope that will be assured. Not talking about a worldly hope. Not talking about the hope that Georgia will win the national championship. That's gone. Alex and I, we, we cry together. We, you know, we lean on each other. It's rough. Not that kind of hope. That's a worldly hope. That's a vain hope. No, the hope that is fixed in heaven. 
1 Peter 1. It's a living hope, Peter says. And if it's a living hope, then you can have that hope now. A mother and her four-year-old daughter were preparing for bed, and the child was afraid of the dark. When the lights were turned off, the girl noticed the moon shining in through the window, and she said, Mommy, is that God's light up there? Mom said, Yes, it is. Soon another question right after it. Will he put it out and go to sleep too? Oh, no. He never goes to sleep. After a few moments, the little girl said, as long as God's awake, I'm not scared. Listen, people, God is awake and God is here and he's at work in this place. I am confident of that. That means we don't have to be afraid. We can pray and we can get down on our knees and we can lead through that. Prayer belongs to the people of God. And so I want to encourage you. We may be a mess. But it is a beautiful mess that God is at work in. And I'm thankful for that. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you for your love for your people wherever they are. I thank you particularly for the village church, the way that they're serving you, the way that they're shining a bright light in this community and where in and around this area where our people live. Father, we thank you that you have called us by your grace and mercy and we, you have made us yours. And so I pray very particularly for the village church that they would get on their knees, literally or in their hearts, and they would pray for you to continue to be at work here, thanking you. And, and praying in hope as they do. Father, we praise you. Help us to overcome these barriers that keep us from praying. And help us to recognize that you are, the God on, you are God on the throne. And Christ is our Savior. And we can intercede on behalf of your people. Father, we praise you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.